No, that's right. We try to model everything that we actually push out through books. So the book that comes out in January is just teaching feedback, engagement, and well-being for each student. And you mentioned that in the intro. The key is that you meet each student where he or she is at. And so when you're doing that, that requires a high level of engagement. So in our classes and the interactive sessions that we do, whether they're in person or virtually, there's a lot of back and forth that goes on between students because the richness of the class comes from all the different perspectives that come in. So at Baylor, we start with the belief that there's truth to be known and that we can know that when we bring these different perspectives together. And so that engagement of the student and the, the, the richness of that comes in through these professionals who are doing this work in schools all across the country. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have John Eckert. Uh, he's an assistant department chair. Uh, he's part of uh, Baylor University. We're going to talk about uh, his program that teaches uh, effectiveness, feedback, engagement, and well-being for students. So I'll, I'll let him describe that in more detail. But uh, John, welcome and thank you. Thanks for having me, Richard. It's great to be with you. If you would tell me about your department and the program that you're running. Yes. So I am at Baylor University in the Department of Educational Leadership. We are connected to the Center for School Leadership through both of those conduits. We serve students through programs, through MA and doctoral programs to support people moving into educational leadership. And then through the center, we support teams of educators who are doing this work to use improvement science tools to improve the work that they're doing with kids. And we kind of focus our work in three buckets around feedback, engagement, and well-being, knowing that when you distill education down to its essence, it's those three things that matter. People have to be well, they have to be engaged, and you have to give them feedback for how to improve. And so we group all of our work there and then use improvement science tools to track progress both in the master's and doctoral programs, as well as the school leadership development that we do with teams, where we do that on an ongoing basis, because there's a lot of good work going on in schools right now, we just need to capture it and then elevate that and the things that aren't working, either revise or move on from them and try new things. So that's the essence of the work we do both at the Center for School Leadership at Baylor, as well as in the Department of Educational Leadership. How much student-to-student interaction goes on during sessions, or is it more focused on them just being relaxed and listening and in the classroom setting? No, that's right. We try to model everything that we actually push out through books. So the book that comes out in January is just teaching feedback, engagement, and well-being for each student. And you mentioned that in the intro. The key is that you meet each student where he or she is at. And so when you're doing that, that requires a high level of engagement. So in our classes and the interactive sessions that we do, whether they're in person or virtually, there's a lot of back and forth that goes on between students because the richness of the class comes from all the different perspectives that come in. So at Baylor, we start with the belief that there's truth to be known and that we can know that 
when we bring these different perspectives together. And so that engagement of the student and the, the, the richness of that comes in through these professionals who are doing this work in schools all across the country. So we grow a lot as professors from the students that we have, and we try to build a community where they're able to do that. So when it's virtual, we use breakout sessions on Zoom regularly. We use a lot of tools like Slido and Mentimeter, which are digital tools for aggregating information and then allowing each individual to respond anonymously sometimes where they can provide attribution. Every class is built in with readings that come before it, with responses that come in. We use those responses to then inform the discussions in the classes. So as a faculty member, I've always read every response before a class starts. And I pull quotes from students that are commenting on things that they've read to build in that richness into the discussion. So the classes are very dependent on that engagement because if you're focused on each student, that's a requirement of the way that we uh, we teach if we're gonna do this in a way that actually helps each individual student flourish. What does the flow of a, of a typical class look like versus a, a standard class that doesn't have all these uh, attributes to it? Sure, so I can give you two different versions. So we do on-campus intensives that are eight-hour days of classes. And so those are amazing classes where there's a lot of back and forth. People are getting up. We do a lot of what we call human continuums where we have them take a position on something going from zero to 10. And then they have to explain to someone that they land next to why they're there. Uh, we use the digital tools there because it's a way to get whether you have 30 people or 500 people in a ballroom, you can get their reactions in and then you discuss those things. When we work with the school through the center, we'll typically survey the school on different topics and then we'll use that information when we meet with them in person or virtually for them to get their quantitative results, but then we actually make them code the qualitative responses. So if they're open response questions, we give them a quick training as researchers. How do you identify themes through those codes? And so we bring that in, whether that's in person or virtually. But obviously the eight hour intensive is going to be a different kind of class than a virtual class. But after class is over, we then eat dinner together. We do fun things. We'll go to Top Golf, do escape rooms, do different things all around Waco, which is where Baylor is situated, to build that community. So that then when they leave and they go into the virtual classes where they're embedded in their schools, they're across 10 states right now in the master's program, that when they get together on Monday nights from 7 to 8.30, they have community already built in. So there's a vulnerability and a trust that's been established. So then when we have you know, a 15 minute, here's what, here's a quick summary of ideas. You've done your written responses. You go into breakout rooms. There's a high level of professional trust that's already there. And so an hour and a half session would probably look like, you know, 15 to 20 minutes of whole group, then a 15, 10 to 15 minute breakout, then another 15 to 20 minute the whole group and then another 10 to 15 minute breakout and then a wrap up of the class. So there's a lot of back and forth because we know from research on the ways virtual classes are taught, people don't learn well when you have a talking head. It, this is in person as well, but certainly not on Zoom. So anything more than about 15 minutes of whole group, you've got to have a chance for these students to interact with each other and with the professor. I will say one last thing, even in the whole group, there's a lot of stuff going on with the chat window where students are reacting and questions are being asked and students are being asked to grab the mic. Because again, when you're doing professional education, bringing students expertise in and experiences from the classroom becomes increasingly important. So that's two different ways to think about the class interactions, if that's helpful. Well, how do you able to interact, but um, 
them to not multitask and miss what the lecturer is saying or miss that on the experience? Like, how do you pace it? Yes. So certainly in person, that's a lot easier because we have them up and moving and it's this interactive thing. And we've you know been doing that for thousands of years. Virtually, it's it's trickier. But I think the reason why we know that they're engaged is everything that we have them doing in that hour and a half class session is tied into what the professor's objectives, objectives would be. And so when they're in those 10 to 15 minute breakouts, they, there's a discussion leader, they come back and then they report out what insights they had from that. And then they move to the next one. I think long breakout sessions can become problematic because I think you can lose people in that they can get off onto other tangents, but that's why we keep them to no more than 10 to 15 minutes in those breakouts. And then we bring them back, they report out and then we move on to the next thing. So there are a lot yeah. of ways to check through Mentimeter. Mentimeter allows you to poll people immediately. Slido allows questions to be asked and then upvoted. You can see the interactions if you have multiple ways to pull them in. The key is to not be droning on and on on the Zoom screen while people will find other ways to stay engaged in things that are actually keeping their mind there. I think talking on a Zoom screen, even with some PowerPoint slides, that uh, isn't going to do a lot for very long. And so, again, we try to keep them in these kind of 15-minute increments. Well, what do you what do you notice? What do you notice about uh, I don't know in a given class that's not used to this? It's new. It's the first time they've ever had a lecture like this. Yeah. What kind of behavior do you get? And then what do you get when they're used to it? When they've done this many times and they know the routine? Yeah, so I'll give you two contrasts here on that. So the I gave you the example the master students that have those eight hour classes and they spend two weeks on campus. They react very differently to those virtual classes because that's what they've come to expect. They've had the in person version and then they get it virtually. And so they're very natural. They're very used to the back and forth. There's not that awkward pause of do I trust somebody? Do I say something? When we do those sessions, when it's only virtual and we're doing those for the first time with school leaders, leaders who are coming together through the Center for School Leadership, there is sometimes a learning curve where people are a little hesitant, wondering if you're really serious that you want them to grab the mic or you want them to get in the chat or when they go in the breakout rooms, they're going to have to report out. And so we always are careful to express our norms at the beginning of the session that, hey, the key here is to listen and ask questions and to reflect and not fear being judged or judging others, but bringing that kind of confident humility Adam Grant talks about that in his book, uh, Think Again, that, hey, we may not have all the answers, but we know there are answers out there. And so by listening and learning together, we're going to get closer to those answers. And so I would say that's a norm that takes a while to build if you're only doing it virtually. That's why with our with our degree programs, we always have an in-person component because that accelerates that a lot more quickly. With the center work where we're working with school teams, sometimes that is only done virtually. Now, even with that, we try to bring them together for a couple of days in the summer through our academies to get them involved in that kind of work before they have to do it all virtually because it's hard to build community in only a virtual environment. But it can be done. It just takes some repeated ongoing work and those breakout sessions where they see that their voices are valued and that they begin to value other people's perspectives as that enriches the way they think about their own context. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, 
We need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. So I don't know, specifically, you know, without naming names or anything, what are some really interesting interactions you've seen or surprising positive benefits you've seen in the students? Yes. So I, I can say the we just had our first cohort of master's students, master's in school leadership students graduate this past Saturday. And so 27 of them started in 20 in, in June of 2021. So in the middle of the pandemic and all 27 graduated this Saturday. And I would have to say in this current climate to start with 27 educators who have added a degree during one of the most disrupted education periods ever and to get them all to graduation 100 percent rate. That, I think, speaks to the remarkable level of connection that they had with each other and the quality of the students. And so they didn't see it as an online program. Sometimes online degrees have a hard time getting people to actually go through the, the, the full process. They'll start, but they won't finish. And the commitment they had to each other was remarkable. And so we saw in the first 10 days they were together, there was this deep need for connection with each other. So they were sharing stories within the first week of struggles with family life. Two, two of the women in the program had just recently had husbands that had left them and they connected one evening and it completely changed those dynamics. And then you had other people that were struggling with particular types of students at their school where they weren't able to get through, where they were struggling with an administrator or a colleague. And so they had these deep connections, sometimes over dinner, sometimes in class, or sometimes a conversation started in class that extended afterwards. And so then that feeds into those virtual experiences where for 18 months, they're checking in once a week with these people for classes and the work that they're doing. And so those relationship pieces go deeper. And so I would always stay on. I would get on a half an hour before. So I was like, hey, if you just want to get on and connect with each other and talk, We'll start class at seven, but you can jump on at six thirty, and and class would end at eight thirty, and then I'd stay on and answer questions or check in with anybody who needed help. And I was rarely off until nine thirty at night. So what was an hour and a half class would end up being a three hour professional sharing and development session that was completely for an hour and a half of it. It was completely dictated by what they needed, and so saw this deep community happening where they were asking really hard questions. Sometimes they were personal family questions. A lot of times it was, how do I make this professional, personal thing work? Because people certainly have struggled over the last couple of years and probably forever with work-life balance. We, I always joke, like I've never really seen anyone who's achieved work-life balance. Everybody's always trying to. And so what we started talking about was more work-life integration. How do you integrate work and life in ways that are life-giving to you and not exhausting. And so we've had a lot of those kinds of conversations where when you distill education down to its core, that feedback, engagement, and well-being makes that nice acronym of FEW when you just focus on those few things and you do that for each student, then that work becomes life-giving as opposed to exhausting, which I think is what a lot of educators have felt over the last few years. So we've been able to experience that both in person and virtually. So I can certainly go into more specific details, but that's kind of a general answer yeah, it's, to that right. question. I wanted to ask you specifics. What, what, what does well-being mean? 
What does yeah. that mean in a, a classroom yes. setting? What's an example? Yeah. Yes. So it's one of those things kind of when you know it, when you don't see it. And so I think what we're seeing in classes right now are high levels of depression and isolation, students locked into screens instead of individuals, that inability to focus. So to me, when you see students that are well in a classroom, they have students that have some cognitive endurance. So they're well fed, they're rested, they feel like they're not necessarily, I, I push on this a little bit and I'd be happy to talk more about this. Not necessarily, they feel like they're in a safe space. Obviously we want kids to be safe, but I think it's it's kind of wrongheaded to tell students that, hey, to be, uh, your well-being is addressed only when you're, when you feel safe. We're asking kids to have really hard conversations with each other about really tricky things in a polarized society. And so what I would push for is a respectful space where we're going to ask you to do some hard things. It's sometimes going to feel uncomfortable, but we're going to do that in a respectful way where you can become all that you were created to be as you help others do the same. So to me, I believe every person is, is made for something. And it's our job as educators to come alongside them and help them become more of that. And so when we do that well, that leads for flourishing and that's where real well-being comes from. So uh, I'm happy to talk more about that, but that's how I would characterize that. What kind of subjects, what kind of conversations? And is it is it linked to a, um, a subject in a class or is it more loose? Like uh, you have classes on, I guess, philosophy? Yeah, I think I got most of that. These, most of um, these difficult, yeah, sorry. Do you, have, do you have classes on philosophy and society? And is that where these conversations happen? Or do they happen in a math class? Like what, what kind of classes? Sure. Uh, oh, yeah. So I, I can speak to our classes. Our classes are, with, are on educational leadership. So I teach instructional leadership, fundamentals of school leadership, administrative theory. Those are three classes. So those are easy places for those to come in because as a leader, you've got to make sure you're well if you're going to have other people be well. So in, in at the graduate level, those are easy questions. I also was a former middle school science teacher. And so certainly those conversations came up all the time, especially in science, because you're figuring out with middle school kids, they're fascinated by the world and how it works around them if you know how to ask the questions the right way. And then they're also interested in their place in that world and they're trying to make sense of themselves as they're becoming adults and trying to figure out what that's like. And so you have all kinds of off the wall questions, I mean, that come up from seventh graders about how things work and where they fit and what the purpose of things are. And so those conversations can get pretty deep pretty quickly. Sometimes they're set up by the curriculum and other times it's just a 13 year old with a question they've never thought of before about, you know, why something works the way it does or why something else isn't the way it should be and and where middle schoolers fit in that. So I've certainly seen it at, at multiple levels. Obviously at the professional degree level, we have a little easier time. Those conversations come up because we're there's always an undergirding philosophy under what we're doing that is the belief, you know, just what I shared earlier, that the belief that these are created beings that are in front of you that you believe have this innate capacity for a lot of really amazing things. It's you don't give up on a person like that. You can't dismiss the person. You can't write them off if you believe that they're created for something and it's your job to help come alongside and, and move them forward. So with professionals, 
that's an easy conversation with students. It's much more tangible in the way you coach and support and mentor those students so that you're addressing them as individuals, not as a collective. Uh, the last thing I'll say about that is, I think federal policy, when we moved from what had been happening for decades in, in American schools, where we would test some kids and other kids, we'd make sure they didn't show up on the days they were supposed to be tested with no child left behind that passed at the beginning of this century, that moved it from just looking at some kids to looking at all kids. And I would argue now that we need to be looking at each kid. And I think that's something that's very hard to do with a standardized test. It takes that human to human connection uh, to do that effectively. All right. But does how did this program start and how does someone get into it? Do they have to apply to get into Baylor or I don't understand. It just sounds very generic. Sure, sure. No, so there's, again, the, the Center for School Leadership serves schools that want to work and partner on these things. And we put them into these categories of whether you want to work on well-being, engagement, or feedback. And those schools work on, on problems of practice related to that. So that's a school uh, level thing. Uh, there's a fee for joining. We do an academy and then there's a, a we meet monthly with them. For the master's program and the doctoral programs, uh, it is simply a graduate degree program that you would apply for. So the MA in school leadership at Baylor is where that is. That's We take cohorts every year. And so we have cohorts apply. March 1st is the deadline. We start every June with a new cohort and we work with them for 18 months. They complete a capstone project where they show their impact on students. That's their basically their thesis work. And then they graduate in 18 months. So that's a fairly traditional master's program model. The interesting thing is, though, it is split in its dual track. because It's for public school people and also people that are in independent schools. So you can pick which track you want to go in. We combine for some classes and split out for others. So that's that. The EDD All right, program, one, one second. Oh, one second. So, yeah, sure. so these are grad level students that are learning how to run the classes. But what about the students in them? Where do they come from? The, the students in the... So they, they, these are Is it all just grad students that are learning how to teach this, but they're also students as they learn? Or do you also get, let's say, undergrads or, you know, I don't know, even high school students and have these teachers teach them yeah. real time? Yes. No, great question. So we are not a teacher preparation program in that regard. We are working with the people that are educators currently that want to become administrators. I do teach undergrad classes as well. So I do have college students that, that participate in leader, their leadership minor students that come from all over, all different disciplines. And we do similar work for whatever field they're going into. But in the education sector, where we would overlap with high school and middle school students is we do host these events in schools. We do have them capture video of themselves working with students and then we analyze that to see how well engaged those students are we're also building out to create hub sites around the country where we have people coming in and seeing this work where you're addressing well-being engagement and feedback for each student where other people can come in and see that going on with middle school and high school students but that's where the center is now four years old and that's where we're expanding. We were limited during COVID to be able to do that. So we did not do any of that virtually, but we hope to have those hub sites set up within the next year or two, where I think some of what you're asking could happen, if that makes sense. Again, what will happen? Will undergrads be, will you have essentially like a lab setting for these yeah. grad students so that they can actually teach 
sample classes of undergrads or like how what's the full type of program yeah. look like for you the absolute yeah. best training for these people yeah so currently we have those partnership schools through our teacher preparation program at baylor which runs i'm in the department of educational leadership through the department of curriculum instruction we have partner schools all over central texas that take our we call them interns they do a year-long student teaching placement where they do that and they come to class at baylor on fridays to review and get the theory behind what they're doing all week so they do that over the week so those partnerships are very strong baylor has one of the best uh, they're called pds sites they have some of the best pds sites in the country and so they're a national leader in that area so that that work is that work's already occurring where we hope to expand it is through the center by putting sites around the country at schools where you can get these hubs of educators there that are not even necessarily Baylor educators, but they have a Baylor connection through their administration to say, hey, look, we're doing good work in this area. Like teachers are really good at engaging students through questioning. If you wanna see that in action, you can come and do that. And we would do some professional development around that at the site where you could see those students uh, in action with educators at those sites doing that work so that's the say that's where we're at now and that's where we're hopefully moving toward when you teach these uh you know these grad students grad level students to do this and they in school what if the school doesn't support it you know how yeah. to act the seeds and get this program inside the school without the school saying sorry we don't do that here and the whole yeah. you know, the whole thing's gone no, that's a great point. And some of our, I'll, I'll be honest, we, we, our last day of classes in June with our master's students, we go through a whole reentry piece of what it might be like in August if you go back and you do not have people that see the need to address well-being, engagement, and feedback in the way that you do, or they think it's just too much. And if you have 150 students in a day, you can't possibly do that for each kid. So what does that reality check look like? So that certainly happens there. And we are with them every Monday night hearing the struggle. And there are sometimes tears. <laughs> there is sometimes joyful breakthrough where they find three or four other people that are willing to partner with them. And that's one of their first projects in the fall is to find a group of three or four other like-minded educators that can do this work in meaningful ways. And then hopefully other people will look at it. And this has happened. We'll look at it and say, oh, they're doing some things that look interesting. We'd like to see more of that. But that is also why the Center for School Leadership, which is the other arm of what we do, tries to bring teams of educators together. So basically to to do the work, it's the same cost whether you bring five people or 10 people to it, because we want a larger group there to help carry that work forward. So it's not one person being developed to do something in a school that no one else fully understands. So if we bring teams of teachers and administrators together, it's less likely to end up with the way, you know, your question certainly can happen when you're only developing one person at a school. But when you start to develop five to 10 people, that then expands the reach and makes it so that it's more likely to actually get some traction at the school and not just be left behind. And how long is this program? And is it open, let's say, if it's a, a paid type program to outsiders or do people have to be, you know, grad student at Baylor? No, no, that's a good question. So the master's programs and the doctoral programs are typical programs. You have to enroll at Baylor and that's fine. But the Center for School Leadership 
is, it, you know, we take individuals. But we have a, I'll give you a quick example. February 4th, we have an event called Leading a Culture of Joy. So anybody, and we have people flying in for it. We have a number of people from just around Texas. They'll come in and we'll talk about culture building and what that looks like. And so we'll do an hour long, you know, professional development session, whole group, small group, and then we'll break out into an ed camp style conference. I'm not sure if that is a phrase that you know, but basically we have faculty and leaders that are doing really interesting things around the country that will be at roundtable discussions where you can pick three of them that you want to go to over an hour and a half period and then gain some information, knowledge, network with some people there that have a common interest in a common problem. And then we go to a Baylor basketball game as a way to just build community where they're playing the Baylor hopefully will be, will be in the top 10 in basketball and we're combining professional development with just food and then a fun event at the end and so they come for that so anybody can sign up for something like that the academy in the summer again we like to have school teams but we have individuals come to that but it's always to build toward developing progress on a problem of practice that you've identified so we like to get if we can get three or four school teams working on the same problem from different angles they then check in with each other each month for a half an hour Zoom call to update their progress where a teacher and an administrator from the school are required to join that call to help build capacity that way. And that's open to anyone that's interested. So what are common problems? What are some anecdotes of specific yeah. things that the program has achieved that you know make yeah. you happy? Smart. Yeah. So one of the things that happens in education is teachers are very siloed. They don't get to see each other do what they do. And so a year and a half ago, oh, we started a peer observation and feedback network. So we did a group in Atlanta, we did a group in Texas, and then we did a group out in California. And we had about 15 schools participating in this. And we gave them some protocols for how to watch teaching, how to give feedback on teaching. And these schools went from not having really done any of that to doing peer observations regularly where they did hundreds of peer observations, not for evaluation purposes, but just to give each other feedback on how they were improving. So it might have been that a teacher wanted feedback on how to improve their questioning or how to improve their ability to assess things or how to check in on how to make their time more efficient in the classroom. And their peers came in and were able to give them that feedback, report on that, and then they check in each month and we would find out from them how effectively they were actually improving whatever their goal was. All the work is set in 90-day cycles, so at the end of 90 days, they reset the next goal. And so some of those schools have now been on that process for a year and a half, and they've made huge progress where teachers are no longer as isolated. They're improving practices in areas where they feel like they need help, and their students are seeing some better outcomes, whether it comes from AP tests or Standard, other standardized achievement measures, but really it's kind of changing the culture in the school from being these isolated silos to now being integrated where people are becoming much more used to having other professionals that are giving them feedback for how to improve. So that's uh, that's one example. I'm happy to give more. Anyway, that's from the teacher's perspective. What about the student's perspective? What do they mm -hmm. say when they're in front of a teacher for a whole semester that has been yeah. training your guys' method versus not? Yeah, so we have a student survey that we send out. It's a 22-item survey, so really short, uh, but it gets at well-being, engagement, and feedback. So it asks some questions like, in this class, I work hard every day, or in this class, my teacher gives me feedback that helps me improve, or in this class, 
other students respect what I have to say. So it's a way of not making it a popularity contest for the teacher, but it makes it so that the student focuses on how he or she is learning effectively in that classroom. And then we get that in and we track it multiple times. So we, we see where is it at at the beginning. And we've seen some nice statistically significant growth on those survey items where st students are saying, yeah, in, in this school now, or in this classroom, I should say specifically, I feel this is different because obviously if you don't have some data with the baseline and then seeing growth, that doesn't really mean a lot because a student maybe rating it highly because they just haven't experienced a highly engaged classroom. But if we can see growth over time, that's an improvement. So that's where we see that. I would also say the schools where we go, we do site visits and I'll give you one quick example from a school in New York. And this was a school we were studying. Um, I wouldn't say it's a direct connection to Baylor, but when we were studying the school, the um, student said to me when we were, I wasn't doing an interview, but I was just walking through the class. They were at a, greenhouse that was a community partnership with a water reclamation facility and they built this greenhouse that water through composting leaves that the composting leaves would heat the water and then that would heat the greenhouse this was in syracuse new york so it was in october greenhouse was about 65 degrees when it was 30 degrees outside so they were growing things there and i asked the student i was like, how did you figure all this out did your teacher just tell you how to do it she's like no this is a figure it out class if we have questions the teacher is there to help, but he never tells us the answer. It's always this figured out class. And to me, that's a different level of engagement. That's a more meaningful level. And that's the kind of class, that's the kind of experience we want to see students having in, in anyone that's connected to our programs at Baylor. So if that gives you a kind of a tangible example beyond just survey data. Well, I mean, if there's a big focus on engagement. I would think, you know, beyond a survey, why not have students in roundtables and literally ask them? You know, what did yep. you like? What did, what did you not like? What suggestions you have for improvement? I mean, do you do that stuff or because of yeah. time constraints and number of people you yeah. have to do surveys? It's largely been two constraints so far. It's been COVID and not being able to get kids together. And so we haven't we haven't pulled it in virtually. So basically all the data we've gotten has been digitally, but we haven't done any of these uh, student focus groups. And the second thing is institutional review board. So when you start to collect data from students, there's a high le higher level of scrutiny from IRB, which we would have to go through a process to say, hey, here's the data we're collecting. Here are our partners. Here's what we're going to do. And I think that's where we need to go next. So I think you're definitely on the right track. But we haven't been able to collect that unless it's been through IRB. So that study in New York State, that was went through IRB. So we were able to collect data, include it from students, and that was fine. But otherwise, they're a protected class of students for uh, protected class of people for obvious reasons. And so we have to be careful how we do that because when we collect this, we don't want to just collect it for internal use. We want to publish and put this out there. So we put our own students data out there, but it's a little more limited on their students who are a little bit further removed from. But certainly with COVID restrictions reducing where we can actually be in classes and get them around a table and talk and we're not seen as someone who might be a COVID spreader, that possibility is definitely there and will hopefully grow in the years to come. Okay, well, very good. Um, where can people learn more about this program and, uh, you know, call yeah. and find out more and engage? Sure. So two places, the Baylor Center for School Leadership. So if you just pull that up, you'll get the website with that. And then the Baylor MA in School Leadership is there. And then the book, Just Teaching, Feedback, Engagement, and Well-Being for each student that comes out. That's on Amazon right now. 
and there's a companion website that will have all the tools we use to collect data and hopefully it'll be useful to educators and anyone interested in those areas so i'd say those are the three main places to land for right now and then my twitter handle is just eckert john feel free to reach out to me or my email is john underscore eckert at baylor.edu so happy to happy to get those individual connections as well and one last item you mentioned I think it was like two or three different tools that you use to generate feedback. Yeah. Uh, could you restate the names of those tools? Sure. So I love Mentimeter. It's a free tool. Mentimeter allows you to pull um, anywhere. You get three slides for free for any presentation. I have the subscription, but that's just because I keep a lot of data, but that's free. So it's at menti, M-E-N-T-I.com. And then slido.com. That's great if you're trying to get feedback from an audience, especially big audiences, because it allows anybody to put a question in. And if other people have the same question, they can upvote it and it takes it to the top so that you can make sure that you address the most pressing questions from your class or audience. Okay, very good. Well, John, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, what you're doing, I think, is is critically important to help students uh, and teachers and all that uh, have a better time of it versus just Wah, 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 Charlie Brown type stuff. Thank you for <laughs> right. Hey, thank you, Richard. I appreciate being on. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.